Welcome to Adapt Nation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today, 20-year ex-vegan and acclaimed author, Lierre Keep, joins us to expose the ugly truths about veganism and plant agriculture that we never hear. Lierre helps break down the flawed and misunderstood moral, political and nutritional worldviews that are so popular in vegan, vegetarian and plant-based advocacy. And look guys, this is not a witch hunt, I promise. Lierre cares so deeply about causing least harm, harmonising with nature and replenishing our looted soils. She makes the claim that the most passionate about nature and sustainability are unfortunately also the most naive regarding our modern plant-heavy food supply. This is why we did the episode, to empathetically speak to the devout vegans, vegetarians, and those seriously considering a plant-based diet for ethical, sustainable, and nutritional reasons. There is no judgment, just the offer of adult knowledge to supplement people's passions. And the thing is, pro-vegan messaging can strike a chord in quick sound bites. Rebutting those sound bites, however, requires deep dialogue and understand it. Lear's emotional and jarring book, The Vegetarian Myth, does exactly that from a moral, political, and nutritional perspective. And yes, as you've grown to expect, I do my very best to try and help represent the key elements of her book within this unavoidably long podcast interview. I honestly and sincerely think it's worth committing your time to this episode. Because we all need to level set on some ugly truths if we are to find sustainable and nourishing ways to exist. Hey, and if you like this episode, please help us out by giving us a quick five-star rating and review on your chosen podcast platform. And look, if you have thoughts, questions, or concerns about what we discussed today, then follow the link within your show notes to get the Adaptation episode page, where you can also read the full show note transcriptions. And if you just want to get into this discussion already... I hear you. Let's do it. Let's discuss the unsettling moral, political and nutritional truths of veganism with the wonderful Lierre Keith. So I am so excited to have this conversation. I must admit, um, I've not had this level of feedback on a guest coming onto the show as I've had this one. So I put some feelers out into social media a couple of days before this uh, this conversation. And I've had so much interest from former vegans and people sitting on the fence or just general Joe public that want to know more about whether they should be moving to more of a plant-based diet. So today we have the incredible Lierre Keith on the mics today. Welcome, Lierre. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction. All right. Now, honestly, it's a, it's a true pleasure to be having this conversation with you. And um, I, I wanted to get us started with me just thinking a little bit about your book, The Vegetarian Myth. So it is, I've just read it. Um, I had to plow through. It is a it is a thick book, <laughs> but thinking <laughs> in a, the most positive way possible. Um, it's complex and we're going to get into some of that. So for the guys listening, it is a book around exploring the moral, political and nutritional aspects of veganism. And Lier's got a unique perspective to offer. Now, what I will say is that there clearly is an incredible amount of energy, research and heart that's gone into this book. And 
honestly, Leah, you've afflicted me with the truths that are painful and challenging to hear. You've made my brain hurt. Um, it, <laughs> it was an incredibly difficult book to process and work through. Uh, I felt tormented with unsolvable problems, you know, weighed down with a pessimism that I've never felt before, and almost like an existential quandary that feels bleak. But <laughs> you have done incredible work. You've done good work. The work that is needed, the work that everyone needs to hear. I mean, it's such a powerful book. So I just wanted to sincerely, out the gate, just say thank you for clearly your life's work and commitment to what is an incredible read. Well, that's those are the words every writer loves to hear. So thank you. <laughs> but painful it is. <laughs> yeah. And we can we can go through that. So so um, what I'm hoping we can do, just to set the scene, is I, I want to make sure that people are clear on what your objectives are and to make sure that there are no motives that people can quickly dismiss the rest of this podcast, Leah. So I want to just hit you with a few personal questions. Um, they're they're going to be quite quick fire in nature. And I would ask you actually to be as brief as possible with these because I know we can go down some rabbit holes, but I expect we're going to go return to those as we get into your story. Sure. Okay, so first and foremost, how long was you a vegan for, Leah? Almost 20 years exactly. Okay. And was you strictly vegan through that time? Yeah, I was never a vegetarian. I went straight from standard American diet um, right into vegan. Okay. And um, I, I hear these on the interwebs, uh, you know, a, a rebuttal being that maybe you wasn't doing it properly. What would be your <laughs> response to that? Wow. I mean, I was one of the strictest people I knew. I mean, of course, everybody in my social circle was trying to be a vegan, but um, I was, I mean, I was insane. I had like little protein charts stuck up on the refrigerator so I could mix my grains and my beans. I did not eat white sugar or white flour or white rice. I wouldn't even eat ketchup or jelly if there was sugar in it. I mean, I was, it was intense. Like it was a, a fairly obsessive level of being good and pure and, you know, as whole food as was possible to be. And I, I was very serious about it. So if anybody's going to say, oh, you didn't do it right, it's laughable because I was as, as pure as one could be. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Um, what does your food, what do your food choices consist of now? Broadly speaking, um, I, I'm guessing it's, di I know it's different, but if you had to describe an average day of food for you, what does that look like today? <laughs> Well, yeah, the, the number one kind of variable that I, my metric is, does it build topsoil? Because that's the massive emergency that we are facing now is the loss of soil. Um, mostly because what that means is when we lose soil, it vaporizes and it's essentially carbon released into the atmosphere. And the only hope we have as a planet is to get that carbon sequestered. And the quickest way for us to do that is to build soil. So that means animals integrated into perennial polycultures you know, to, <laughs> to make a big phrase right away. Um, so what that means for me where I live is I eat a lot of grass fed beef. Um, I eat a lot of eggs from pasture raised chickens. I have really good access to, uh, pasture raised pork. And I also live on the coast so I can get, and it's a salmon region. So I can get, um, wild caught salmon pretty easily as well. So and also there's, um, there is some dairy in my region and we actually have a cheese factory right where I live and they are very committed to having local grass fed farms. So all of the, the dairy that I eat is, 
uh, comes from there. So my food is actually pretty simple. I also live in a, in a very rural area. So it's a lot easier for me than I would think for most people living in big cities. I don't have to do a lot of um, individual sourcing. Like a lot of it is right here at the store for me, though I do go to some farms to get beef and uh, sometimes, yeah, we get like one pig a year. So we have to go to the farm for that. But oh, wow. yeah. And uh, you, you know, that would suggest without reading any more into that, I would say you're animal based, potentially even carnivore. I'm guessing you're not carnivore. No, I do eat, um, I do eat some vegetables and I don't really crave fruit. I'm not a bit, I don't really, whatever people can eat fruit or not. I don't care. It's just, I, it's not a thing that I really like, so I don't generally do it. So, um, yeah, so I, I do eat some vegetables and I, at the very, this very moment I don't have my own garden, but I'm hoping to get that going again this year. So a lot of that'll come right from my own land. Okay. Okay. Um, when did you write the vegetarian myth? Oh gosh, it was over 10 years ago. Okay. I, I, I spent, I was like, uh, I spent a good two years writing it. So yeah, I could say enormous amount of work and would you been 10 years ago, right? Things, things change fairly quickly. Would you, are you still in support of, uh, the general direction and the majority of the, the writing that you put out there 10 years ago, or would you like to, are, are there things you no longer support would like to rectify? Um, no, I, there's not really much in there that I would change it. Honestly, I, I mean, I spent probably five years thinking it all through. The thing about, you know, when you, when you stop being a vegan is that your, your whole life collapses. I mean, it, your place in the universe, your place on the planet, who you are to yourself, your whole sense of identity is just demolished. It's, you know, sort of <laughs> a giant earthquake, you know, sort of ripples through everything and you're sort of left in the rubble going, well, what did any of this mean? Like, and what do I do now? And where do I live? And what, what am I? So it took a long time for me to sort of put it all back together. And so there was a good five years there of just sitting and thinking a lot and reading a lot and then sort of, I don't know, reviewing my life and all the things that I had tried and all the things I had thought and all the things I was afraid to think about and letting it all come back together and then doing more research about nutrition. Like, why did I destroy my body doing this? This was supposed to be the best diet ever that was going to cure all ills. And in fact, it, you know, permanently left me in pain and degenerating. So like, <laughs> why did this go so wrong? So I really had to look at all the information that I'd been holding off um, because I couldn't look at that stuff when I was a vegan, you know, I could only stay inside my little bubble. Yeah. So I, you know, all of that came flooding in and finally, I mean, it was a relief in one way to, to finally just engage because I think most of us are curious. I mean, that's sort of the nature of being human or animal really. I mean, most animals are also quite curious. So what is out, you know, what, it, what is out there? What is, what does the universe hold? Like, how does life work? What, what is agriculture? What are animals? Who are we? Like all of those questions. And when you're a vegan, at least for me, I couldn't ask most of those questions because I already had the answers and straying from those answers bumped me right away into a territory where what I wanted to be true was not actually true. So you're riding this line all the time, which is a very cult-like kind of mentality, you know, of, I don't want to look at this because it's going to shake me up. It's going to be very upsetting and it's going to threaten what I think I know. And that's a very fundamentalist mindset. Mm. And I really, really, I, if, if that's where you are right now, listener, if that's an experience that that's resonating with you, 
get out of it because it's never a good place to be. Even if you think you're saving the world, it's never a good place to be, you know, where we rigidify what we think is true. Um, and that's definitely a place that humans can go. And, you know, history is kind of one pile of that after another, right? So that's where I was as a vegan. And when I stopped being a vegan, that was the relief, honestly, was just, okay, I can finally engage with all this other information that I've been compiling and was afraid to look at. So the entire history of agriculture, the entire history of civilization, all of these things that as an environmentalist, I was keenly interested in thinking about, and I couldn't because I was a vegan. Mm. So finally, I was able to start to absorb all of that and really engage with it. So that was the relief part of it. But again, you know, it, it took time because you, nobody comes out of being a vegan, especially for that long, um, without a lot of residual kind of emotional and, and certainly physical damage. So all of that, I had to deal with all of that. So it took time to write that book. Just the pra- you know, just getting ready to write it took a long time because I had to assemble all these other facts. And then facts are just facts, but eventually you have to see the pattern. And that's called knowledge, right? <laughs> you can, it's not just stray bits of information, like it all builds to something. And then, you know, you finally have a theory that you can try to apply. So that was kind of the prelude to writing the book. And that's why it took that long. Yeah. And that the work comes through in spades is, it's both limbic and it's logical. There's, and you don't often get that. You don't often get the deeply emotional, the evolutionary uh, narrative as combined with the kind of scientific knowledge wrapped up in a book that kind of makes your heart well. Um, so we're going to get into that. There's one last personal question, and I think it's important I ask this. Uh, I don't even know the answer. I'm assuming, I assume I know the answer, <laughs> which is do you receive any financial benefit from the meat and dairy industry? <laughs> so funny. I know I get, we get accused of this all the time, right? Anybody who writes a book, honestly, about any subject, if it's controversial at all, that's like their number one go-to is, well, you're just under the pay of the medical industry. You're just in the pay of the pharmaceutical industry. You clearly are getting money from the Cattlemen's Association. I'm like, where's my check? (laughs) Of course, I'm not getting any money from any, you know, I get my, my royalties, but that's the only financial benefit I've ever had. Yeah. That's just silly. Good, good. I'm glad you cleared that up. All right. So n- now with the, now with the you know the the, the baseline kind of uh, rebuttals addressed, so we kind of know where you're coming from. Let's let's start with this idea of you talk about something really eloquent. You talk about passion without knowledge is like naive at best and destructive at worst, right? You speak about this idea of um, you reluctantly accepting adult knowledge, uh, which I think is a fascinating idea. Uh, and the long, painful journey of, of of going through that as a vegan. But the thing that I think just really kind of resonates with me most is that you say it's time to put away the fairy tales, uh, you know, to assume your adult responsibilities, to go from global to local and remove our distance from food. I love all of these points. I want to get started with really understanding this idea of adult knowledge, but maybe we can we can step back one step further and go with the the maybe your reasons for choosing veganism and maybe you can explain if those reasons still resonate with you because i think the first portal call is have you turned your back on the animals the planet sustainability you know moral and ethical reasons i think it's really important that people understand what your motives are sure so i became a vegan for the reasons that most people become vegan. And that is that I cared very, very passionately about 
the planet and about animals and about justice, human justice, justice for anyone who was voiceless, including, you know, all of our animal kin. And that was a motivating force really since I was four years old. That was the thing, the things that I cared about the most. Um, you know, and of course we all have our funny, cute stories of when we were kids, but mine all revolve around that. Mm. <laughs> so then when I was 16, I met a, another teenager whose family, they were all vegans. And I was in, within two weeks, I was utterly convinced. Um, it made complete sense to me and I had no other information to hold up to hers. Like it, it all seemed to make sense that, and so of course I started reading all the books and I had all her little pamphlets and I, it was, it was a done deal. Like it, there was no holding back. I was just going to do this. So in I went. So 20 years later, I poked my head up and <laughs> it was not what I expected. Um, so I, yes, I am still absolutely the, the values that I think drive people, um, to, to explore this at all are absolutely the right values. And you do not have to give up those values if you decide that veganism is not working for you. Because in fact, at this point, I would argue that the best embodiment of those values is not a vegan diet. I know people think that that's true, but if you get into it a tiny bit further about where your food actually comes from, agriculture is the most destructive thing that people have done to the planet. So a diet based on agriculture is not going to get us to the world that we want. And that was like the big, that was like the, the horrible thing in the middle of all of this that I had the hardest time facing, you know, that I ran from. That was the knowledge that I ran from. Because underneath that, of course, is the idea that we can live without any suffering to any creature, that our lives are possible without death. And that's not true. And that's the fairy tale. And that was the hardest part to me was facing that no matter what I ate, animals were dying. And really the question was, so is my life going to be a part, is, is the death that's involved in my life going to be a part of the cycle of life, something that makes the world stronger, or is it going to be the death that's killing everything? And it's a very bleak choice, but those are our only options, right? There's no death-free option. And that, again, was that, that was that very grim sort of, you know, the adult knowledge of that for something to live, something else has to die. And I really regret that I am not from a culture that knew that, you know, like the person who told me that, I know this is going to sound so cliched, but honestly, it was a Native American friend and that's the knowledge of her people. And she just looked at me so sweetly and so kindly and slightly pathetic, you know, like, <laughs> sweetheart, this is just how it is. Like for something to live, something else has to die. And it was such a relief to hear that. I was like, that is in fact what I have discovered trying to raise my own vegan food. It was absolutely true understanding the nature of agriculture, what it is, what it's done to the planet. Absolutely true. And then realizing there's a better way, but there's always death involved. Like there's still no death free option. And she was like, yeah, that's, that's just reality. Like you, you, sh you should know this at your age. Um, because then you can do it well. And that's really the point. Like we can be part of the cycle of life or we can be the thing that's killing the cycle of life. And really that's the end of it. So it was, it's very, very hard. And I still have a terrible time with it. You know, I live here in a, in a forest and I'm surrounded by bears and there are mountain lions on my land and all kinds of creatures. And I know what goes on out there. Like they're all eating each other. Mm -hmm. And that's the part of it that I still, I just can't stand it. I don't want anybody to die. And I know that that's not how it works. That soil is dead animals and dead plants eaten by other tiny creatures who make more soil and hence more life. But for that to happen, there has to be a cycle. 
we all have to die. We all have to be food for someone else. And if we're going to have a planet that's filled with with every tiny niche filled, uh, you know, with every conceivable kind of life, and that is what was put in process on this planet, you know, when life began. And it's an incredible thing. Like, look what evolution has done. It fills every last niche. Every single thing will get eaten by somebody and create more life. And species will evolve and they'll do it better and they'll do it more and they'll do it in a different way. But inherent in that is the fact that we are all nutrients for somebody else. We're all going to have to give our bodies back to it at some point. And so I look outside and I love the little bunny rabbits. They're absolutely adorable in my, you know, there's a little wetland and a little field outside my window. And I see them every day running around out there and they're so cute. And then we have beautiful foxes here, just absolutely gorgeous foxes. Um, and I know what they're eating. Like They're eating the rabbits. And that's just the way it is, you know? And then we've got, I'm really lucky we have apex predators. There's still just enough wildness where I live that there are mountain lions on my land. And that's such an incredible gift to know that I, this was like my, this is what I can do. I can buy as much land as I can and keep that habitat safe for them. And I'm so honored that there are mountain lions here. Um, but I know what they're eating. And I also get warned all the time. Why are you walking around at night? You're, you know, like you're a snack. And I was like, they're not really, I mean, we're not really prey for mountain lions, but on occasion there are like in any species, the adolescents behave badly. And when people get attacked by mountain lions, that's always who it is. It's a teenager. So, you know, who knows? I could go down that way, but I don't care. Like, that's a great way to die. If I'm feeding mountain lion cubs, like have at it, you know, like I can't imagine anything. A wolf would be better. I think if I got get killed by a wolf, but I don't, this isn't a bad thing. Like this is just the nature of it. And I understand that now, but back to your point. Yes. That to me, that was the hardest thing was understanding that no matter what I ate, there was death involved. It was unbearable to me. And I still, again, have a hard time with it. It is just, it's the thing about life that I don't like. Like all the rest of it, I find it's just such an amazing thing. All you can do is be in awe every day that you got to be part of it and wake up happy and do your best to live a good life because you got to have one, right? It's so amazing out there. Like just the color of the sky and the beauty of the field and the fact that spring is coming back and always will, like all of that, like we know to celebrate these things, but there's that bittersweet moment that all of it is dependent. It's the exact same moment. Life means there was death and then there will be life again. And I guess that's why we have, you know, religion to sort of help us through that. But it's really hard for me still. But all of those values are still my values. And I am still utterly compelled by trying to save this planet and trying to do the best that we can to make life stronger, you know, in, in whatever ways that we can and to protect the vulnerable and the, the voiceless and the powerless is still the motivating kind of ethic of my life. So none of that changed, but I had to shift what I thought was the best way to that. And it must have been, I mean, it is a radical shift in your world worldview and um, sounds impossible for many people. And, you know, I have, I have many friends that are either devout vegans already or actually many more friends that are, you know, just average Joes that are being bought into um, this, this priority to minimize their meat intake and further increase their plant intake and moving towards, you know, foods that are in the supermarkets that are uh, labeled as plant-based. It is, it's an explosion. And I think it's, it's become even more dominant uh, from the time that you wrote your book, right? You know, 10 years in, I, I don't think, I don't think we've solved that, that problem. I think the knowledge is still not there. Um, and when I think through just 
you know, my, my normal friends that eat an omnivore diet, I struggle to convince them that moving towards a plant-based diet is actually more destructive, yeah. less productive for both their health, for sustainability, and there's death involved. And as you said, life does not occur without death. You also said something about agriculture and how that's devastating. And right. I, you read two things that I want you to just explore for us. You said agriculture is ethnic cleansing, and you said yeah. agriculture is carnivorous. Explain yeah. those two points for us. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to understand what agriculture is. You take a piece of land, you clear every living thing off it, and I mean down to the bacteria, and then you plant it to human use. So that's why it's biotic cleansing, because all of those plants and animals and microorganisms and everybody that needs to live there to keep life going is removed. And the only thing that's grown is essentially a monocrop of humans in one way or another. And we've been doing this for 6,000, 8,000 years now. We have skinned the planet alive. There's no topsoil left. In fact, by 1950, the major grain growing regions of the world were essentially gone. There was no topsoil left. It didn't take very long either. Um, when the white conquerors first got to the Great Plains here, the in, in America and in Canada, the the soil was in places 12 feet deep, and now it can only be measured in inches. And that only took 100, 150 years. And a lot of that plowing was done even before the invention of the internal combustion engine. It was done with oxen and horses and steel plows, and they killed it all. There were 60 million bison, and there's like 1,200 of them left. Like everything was destroyed, and it's been turned into a vast monocrop of either wheat or corn or soy. And where did all that soil go? Well, that's the thing. The moment that you put a plow to soil, you degrade the soil. And what that means is it essentially vaporizes. It's destroyed. And all of the carbon that's been locked up in that soil for thousands of years is released. And it that's it. It's up in the atmosphere now. So we all know that you know burning fossil fuel has been an absolute disaster for the planet. And that's true. And we have, most of us have probably seen what they call the hockey stick graph, where all of a sudden carbon shoots up. Mm -hmm. And that's the beginning of the industrial age. And that's all true. But if you back that up 6,000 years, uh, humans have released as much carbon since the beginning of agriculture to about the year 1800, the beginning of the industrial age. Uh, it took slower. It was, a, it was a longer process. But the same amount of carbon was released. And it was simply through agriculture because all of that soil was destroyed. And I had nowhere else to go but up. So that's where it is. It's still sitting there and, of course, making the planet hotter and hotter. So that's the problem, right? This is an inherently destructive activity. So I don't think you can look at something, an activity like that, that has destroyed 98% of the world's old growth forests and 99% of the world's grasslands. All of those animals are gone. I don't know how you can take away essentially all of their habitat and call that something that's friendly to animals. They have nowhere to go. They're, I mean, they're gone. Like they're extinct. <laughs> They've been extirpated. Most of them are simply gone. So that's it. That's what we did. We took over the planet. And right now, 40% of what's called the primary productive activity of the planet goes directly to humans and another 40% indirectly goes to humans. So we've taken 80% of everything that happens. All of the energy and all and the processes go to feed us. And this, I don't know. This, yeah. this, this is ahead. a challenge because what you're you're challenging and i think you've you wrote this in your book is like to challenge agriculture is to like challenge air 
right? Yeah. Whilst yeah. whilst not everyone lives in in uh, you know like um, rural landscapes, they understand that their food is 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 born from some form of farm, right? Right. Uh, and you know you think through you know rolling fields of wheat or soy or whatever it be or rapeseed or something like that. And you think, well, that's that's how we do it. That's how we do society. That's how we do civilization. That this has been forever. And you're challenging our very existence of feeding us. And hasn't this always happened? And I guess the point is, it hasn't always happened, albeit it has happened for a long time. 8,000, 10,000 years of agriculture sounds like an awfully long time to a lot of people. It's not, though. If you take a, a, think of a football field, the size of a football field, um, and if that entire field represents our time on Earth as human beings, right, um, the last half a yard is the time that we've been doing agriculture. And in fact, the last, I think it's five inches, is the Industrial Revolution. So that's it. It's basically nothing. It's just that's the time that we've been destroyers. Before that, we were all some kind of variation on hunter-gatherer. And like every other species, we were participants in the land. We weren't destroying it. Like we didn't impose ourselves across the landscape. We lived inside it. And those are the cultures that bequeathed us Let's Go and the, the gorgeous, the cave art and the, the carvings that are found. And these are really not just aesthetically beautiful, I think they are, but beyond that, I think, I think they show a, a very profound theological consciousness because the moment that our brains got big enough to make art, the first thing we did with our giant brains was make art. It's quite clear. That's what we did. <laughs> we made paintings and we carved things and we made jewelry and we made musical instruments. And it was all about this, this sort of celebration of our lives. And it was also a very deep thank you because what we drew and what we carved, it's the same thing over and over in every one of those sites. You have the megafauna and the mega females. So you've got what gave us life. You have the giant animals that we were eating and then representation representations of these giant pregnant women. Um, that's it. Like that's those are our lives. That's why we're here. And our first impulse when we got these big brains was simply to say thank you, was to celebrate it, and to somehow try to represent the awe of what we felt. So I don't think that our place here is to be monsters and destroyers. We didn't do that for our first two and a half million years. In fact, I think we felt a great deal of awe and reverence for you know, what we got to experience. Um, and then, you know, we don't really know why people took up agriculture. We know a lot about the history of it. We don't really know the why, because it doesn't honestly make any sense. It's backbreaking labor for piss poor nutrition. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, they work dawn to dusk as agriculturalists. And hunter gathering is really easy. You just step outside, get your food, you're done for the day. Why anybody did this is, you know, this great big question mark, various theories. The best one that I like is the fact that it's addictive, that especially wheat, it turns into a substance called gluteomorphin in your guts. And that's exactly what it sounds like. You get a little happy hit every time you eat it. Um, and it was enough that people were willing to keep trying it. Now, the other thing that happens when people take up agriculture is ultimately, um, because this activity is so destructive, you know, you blow through your topsoil, you destroy all your trees, you drop the water table, all the local waterways are destroyed because, of course, the soil runs off into the rivers. So now there's no fish either. I mean, you've basically got nothing left. You're turning your own land into a moonscape. And ultimately, those people 
have to go out and conquer their neighbors and take their land. And that's what we call, quote, civilization. So that word civilization, that just means people living in cities. But what that actually means is they need more than the land can give. So food, water, energy, they have to come from somewhere else. So from that point forward, um, it doesn't really matter what beautiful, nonviolent, lovely values people hold in their hearts. Your society is now dependent on imperialism and genocide because nobody willingly gives up their land, their water, their trees. But since you've used up your own, you have to go out and get those from somewhere else. And that's honestly the last 10,000 years in like five sentences. And it's the same pattern. You've got this power center surrounded by conquered colonies from which the power center will extract what it wants. So civilizations end up militarized. Um, and there's always you know, an army. Agriculture makes that possible. It also makes it inevitable. Um, so you've got an entire class of people whose job is war, whose job is to go out and conquer and take stuff and bring it back. And then eventually it collapses. And most civilizations last somewhere between 800 and 2000 years. Um, it's literally until the soil gives out. And when the soil is gone, it's over and the whole thing collapses. And then it springs up in some other neighboring region once the pattern has been established. But agriculture always spreads by violence. There's there's no exception to this. Everywhere that it has gone, uh, the first thing that happens is you find the spear points um, and then, you know, a bunch of mangled corpses and then they take over. So that's the spread of agriculture across Europe. It's the spread of agriculture across Asia. Everywhere that it went, it's preceded by by the soldiers. So it's not a great history and it's an inevitable process because it's based on drawdown and overshoot. And the other thing about agriculture is that uh, temporarily you see this huge rise in just the numbers of people. And that's because you're not sharing that land with all those other plants and animals. So you've got way more people than you've ever had before. That makes possible that standing army. And again, it also makes it inevitable. So you've got this temporary blip where you've got way more people um, and then when it collapses, of course, you see the contraction of the population. Now, we think somehow that we we may have sort of outrun the process. But honestly, all we've been doing since 1950 is eating fossil fuel. That was the answer to the problem of topsoil loss was, well, that's all right. We'll just get nitrogen from oil and gas. And that's called the Haber-Bosch process. And indeed, they were able to extract usable nitrogen from oil and gas this, of course, has just made the problem four times worse because the oil and the gas are going to run out too. So what then? So let's just put a finer point on that. You're, you're describing that modern agriculture, for the most part, uh, across the world, or at least in you know, these uh, busy civilizations, these um, you know, dominant civilizations, that we are really growing our plants via fossil fuel use, i.e. via fertilizer, nitrogen, that comes from fossil fuel. Is that is that yep. is that a bl that blanket statement correct throughout the world, or are we mainly talking about America and other kind of heavy industrialized regions? Um, it's true at this point, pretty much everywhere. Uh, that's and even if you were going to try something that was slightly less destructive, you still have the problem of every time you put a plot of soil, you're destroying the soil, and I. I remember I took this class when I was in college. I was only, I don't know, 18 years old, but I, the, the professor had, it was a fascinating class for this reason. He'd been all over the world and this was his sort of his gig, you know, this was the thing that he did and showing us the 
photographs of places, you know, that had been the, you know, the sort of the ground zero for agriculture. So, you know, Iraq and Iran and, you know, the Fertile Crescent and then India. And you can see that, first of all, they look like moonscapes. I mean, there's nothing left. And, you know, even in the ancient historical record, you, is, you know, these were cedar forests so thick that sunlight never touched the ground. And there's nothing, there's just nothing there. There's nothing left. And the, the consequence to humans, besides all the way that it has wrecked you know, human psychology and human culture and the fact that we've all had to become imperialists, you can see it in the health status because he's standing there as this, you know, huge American guy, he's six feet tall and everybody around him, even the men are only like five foot four, maybe. I mean, he's at least a head taller than all of them. And that's what you have with ever growing population on ever shrinking topsoil. There's no minerals. There's nothing left in that soil. It's been mined to death. So the people just shrink, you know, generation by generation, humans get smaller and smaller because there simply isn't enough nutrition left. Um, and the only way now to get anything out of those soils is just to be applying just massive amounts of essentially fossil fuel to it. So yes, we could reverse it. And that's a whole nother discussion, which I'm happy to talk about. But as things stands now, that that's where we're getting our food is from fossil fuel. Right. Okay. And you've also mentioned in your book that there are four to 10 times the amount of energy required um, to the for the creation of these fossil fuel uh, fertilizers and everything else we do in and around the land to consume to, to actually produce one calorie of food. So four to times four to 10 times more energy put in yeah. for the output. And that's scary. That's scary that one we I think we all know that we're depleting our fossil fuels. We also know <laughs> that using them is destructive. But to also know that they're very inefficient in terms of input versus output. That's that's scary. Well, that's just it. I mean, if you had to provide that energy as a human being with maybe an oxen or you know a horse, you would long since have given up because every day you'd be losing calories. You'd be getting skinnier and skinnier. Like it's not worth the effort anymore. And the only reason it's still worth the effort is because we can still pump it out of the ground and get the fossil fuel. But the the moment that you know we really are sort of past, I mean, we're definitely past peak oil. We definitely hit that the top of the curve at some point in the last decade. So we're on the downslope. Um, but there's going to come a moment where it's just not possible anymore. It won't be worth the money that it costs to get the oil out to actually get it out. Like that day is coming probably in our lifetimes. And what then, you know, for the, the 8 billion people who are here, because that's what we've been eating. Talk to me about overshoot. You've used the word overshoot. Um, I, I get it. I've read the book, but can sure. you talk about overshoot, <laughs> carrying capacity, and drawdown because I think these are fascinating ideas, but they're also quite Armageddon-like. <laughs> so they're quite they hard to handle. Be. Yeah, it's definitely an emotional moment. So overshoot. Uh, you mentioned the book. It's William Catton Jr., who was a fantastic scientist, a wonderful human being. I did get to meet him before he died too. So it was definitely a moment. Um, it's a great book. Uh, he has other books as well, but that should just be required reading across the world. Like every school child should be reading this book now because this is what we've done. So overshoot is the concept of how many, let's say humans, how many humans could live on a square mile and can they do it without, uh, permanently destroying the capacity of what's there. So for most hunter gatherers, it takes in a temperate environment, it takes about one square mile to support a human being. Um, if you have more than that, what you're going to be doing is degrading the land. 
So you're going to be asking more from the land than the land can provide every year. You're going to be asking for more trees. You're going to be asking for more fish. You're going to be asking for more rabbits. You're going to be asking for more elk. Whatever it is that you're taking and using for your life, the land cannot provide it because there's too many of you. And that's overshoot and that's drawdown. And the carrying capacity, we used to be really good as humans at knowing what that was. Like around the world, uh, hunter-gatherers, they know exactly how many dependents you can have for how many active adults. Um, and I'm not saying that this is a wonderful thing to happen. It's just reality of what humans have done. So just as an example, in the, like the far north above the Arctic Circle, lots of the cultures there had as a cultural norm that if a woman's husband died and she had children under the age of two, the children had to be killed because there simply weren't going to be enough humans, adult humans who could hunt mm -hmm. to provide, everyone was gonna go hungry for many years probably if that child you know, was raised. There just weren't, there weren't enough resources to go around and everybody knew it. So that was what had to be done. And I'm sure it was absolutely gruesome if you were that family or that woman. But the point is that, that people knew that you can only ask for so much from the land and that asking for more isn't a long-term plan. It just means everybody's hungry and the land gets degraded. So the future becomes even scarier, better to take care of it now. Now we've lost all concept of this, that there should be any limits on human population because that's what agriculture does. It blows through those limits very temporarily, of course, but it does. So you feel like, oh, you can just, we've it doesn't surplus, matter what we right? do. It's, we've got loads it's of always, stuff. we've yeah. got tons of stuff, right? Yeah. Now it doesn't matter that all of that stuff came from dead plants, dead animals, soil that's gone forever. Like we've literally just funneled it all. Mm -hmm. It's just been a great big vacuum right into the mouths of humans, right? Entire species gone, entire rivers gone, all the topsoil gone. And here we have 8 billion humans. So that's the cost of it. Like that's, that's what went into it. And now here we are. Um, but that's overshoot and drawdown kind of, you know, briefly, I do recommend his books very, very highly. He's, he was a fantastic writer. He's very good at laying all of this out. And yes, it does feel grim. There are solutions. So I'm not out of hope, but that we have to face reality if we're going to get anywhere. Mm. And you, you, you speak about, um, I, I guess, um, this kind of dissonance or, or, or this distance, should I say, from our food, this ignorance that we've uh, either been advised to or have just fallen into, right? I'm so disconnected from my food, or most of us are. Uh, and we haven't really intellectually thought about where our food is coming from. As you say, we just open up our cupboards, we open up our fridge, we go to the supermarket, we go to the restaurants, and it, there's just plenty, there's an abundance. And therefore, because I have no connection to my food, I don't understand how it, how it came to be and its dependence. Uh, it's easy to look at what we currently have and say, like, yes, I, I understand there are problems, but I don't feel it, and therefore we're okay. But it's a it's a very different story when you you understand that yes, annual grasses they they've got a good shelf life because of the way in which we process them, uh, and we've got massive stockpiles of of annual grasses, so like grains and grain based product all around the world, and loads of it is exported globally there just seems to be a massive surplus of calories available to us currently in stockpile and produced annually uh, and i think that is part of the narrative of of the vegan discussion is that this is the cheapest way and the most scalable way to feed people so let's do it but is it <laughs> is it the most sustainable like can we keep stockpiling grain calories 
Well, no, because it's not possible without fossil fuel. See, this is where it all falls apart. Like, well, where does it come from? Where do those grains come from? So the very first problem is you can't grow that amount of food at this point without massive amounts of fossil fuel. Like we already blew through all the topsoil to get here. And then in 1950, you know, they invented the, the Green Revolution came around and they bred all of those grains to just absolutely explode in size. So the plants themselves shrunk. Like they, they made the smallest stem they possibly could mm. with the largest head of grain on it. And that was the Green Revolution. Uh, but those plant, you can only grow those plants with that. With, you can only do it using huge outside inputs. Like they demand huge amounts of water and huge amounts of nitrogen. And that can only be done with fossil fuels. So all of that was utterly dependent on oil and gas. That's the only way to do it. Um, even if you were to go back to kind of more standard varieties, it wouldn't be possible now because there's nothing left in the soil. It's it's all gone. We already used it. So all of that's gone. Now we're dependent on fossil fuel. And yeah, here we are. I mean, it's this is what we're up against now. Like we've really backed ourselves up to this clip as as human beings. But when people make these arguments about well, you can feed way more people if you just feed them grain and not meat. There's a whole bunch of problems with those statements. Well, look at but India, what for example, right? What, well, this, what, the, what they're not seeing is the fact that all of that grain, like the numbers that they're using, none of that can be sustained. Like all of it comes from oil and gas. And there's no possible way you can call that sustainable. Like it's going to run out on top of all the other problems. We're already running out of it. So that's not a plan with the future. Like it, it doesn't help to just say, well, well, I'll switch to grain and it'll be fine. Um, it won't, in fact, because the grain will be gone someday too, very soon. Talk to me about the the domination of annual grasses. So I, th I think you eloquently describe that there are, in your book, you describe perennials, which are uh, species of plants that can last for, for many, many years, you know, thousands if, you know, they, 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 don't, they don't need to be played with, they don't need to be nip, manipulated, plowed, removed, tilled. Um, but annual grasses, they they burst into life for a year and then, you know, we plant, plant new ones annually. And you're, uh, my understanding is that that cycle of grow and destroy is is our problem but can you can yeah. you expand upon that a little bit more just so you know i'm sure that wasn't eloquently put together but you speak you speak about annual grasses needing disturbed environments and that they are effectively devastating our planet that sounds fairly uh dramatic but why do you believe that to be so well it's just the facts of the case so all right so first we have to understand the difference between perennials and annuals perennials most plants are perennials like well over 90 percent of plants that are here are perennial plants. And that's pretty much what nature has focused, focused on. So they have very deep roots because they have a long time to grow them. So if you think about a tree, right, nobody could grow that much in one season, mm -hmm. right? It takes years and years to grow a tree. And we could say the same about a lot of annual grasses as well, um, because, or I'm sorry, perennial grasses, because most of what happens, you know, in a, in a prairie on a grassland is under the soil. So you don't see it, you know, because we're humans, we don't live under there, but that's what it is. It's just these vast, vast, deep um, networks of roots is what's going on under underneath uh, the surface of the soil. So it's a lot of growth, okay, is the point. And it doesn't happen quickly. You know, it's going to take time. So when you have that much time, um, you can do things like grow giant trees and grow, you know, giant, giant grassroots. When you don't have a lot of time, 
um, you have to do one thing and you have to do it quickly and that's reproduce, right? The entire point of all of us is that we reproduce, right? We've got to have a way to make more of us. And the way that the uh, annual grasses do that is with a giant seed. It's really their only option. A lot of other plants can spread, um, you know, for instance, through roots or through like, like rhizomes, for instance, but you can't really do that as an annual. You don't have time. So annual grasses have a great big seed and that made it worth it for humans to eat it. The little tiny seeds that perennial plants tend to produce, they're just not worth the effort to harvest and then to process so that you can eat them. They're too small. Like it's just, nobody would bother. Uh, so, but with the annuals, yes, they're going to have a bigger, a bigger seed because that's, they, they only have time to do it. So, um, in areas of the world that have a lot of disturbance, and this would mostly be river valleys, what you find is more annual grasses because having exposed soil is a biological disaster and the planet needs that soil covered really quickly. And nature also loves an opportunist. So, in those kinds of environments, you do find more annual plants um, with the perennial roots out of the way. So let's say there's been a flood and the ground is bare. So there's no perennial plants there putting up a fight of any kind. There's nothing. It's the, the slate has been cleared. And this is the moment when annuals spring to life. Those seeds have been buried in that soil for who knows how long. They can lay dormant for, you know, 100 years, 200 years. They're sitting there and all of a sudden there's no competition. And this is their moment. So they spring to life. And they will cover the ground very quickly. So, you know, nature's um, nature's need has been filled. The, the, the soil is now protected once again. And slowly, the perennials will come back. You know, they'll knit back together. And the annuals will fade from the scene until there's another disaster. So I'm not saying that, like, annuals are bad and perennials are good. They have their role, right? Every species plays a role somewhere. And that's the role of annuals. The way to think about it is, let's say, you cut yourself you know, cooking with a knife or something. So now you've got a cut on your hand and you put a Band-Aid on it. And the Band-Aid is like the annuals. It's the first responder. It's the emergency that will hold it all together. But eventually your skin knits back together. So that's the perennials coming back and reestablishing, you know, a more permanent base, uh, you know, to, to keep the land healthy and safe and the soil protected. So that's what we've got, annuals and perennials. So the problem with agriculture, of course, is that it is entirely annuals. So in order to make, you know, wheat or corn or soy, you have to clear the land. You can't just throw a bunch of seeds around and hope for the best because nothing will happen. Mm -hmm. And we all know this intuitively, right? If you were going to start a garden in your backyard, you can't just sprinkle lettuce and tomato seeds in the grass. Like nothing will happen. Like, we all know that. If you're going to have a garden in your backyard, you need to dig up the grasses. You have to destroy the perennials that are there. You have to clear the soil. Now you can plant your lettuce seeds and, you know, you'll get some lettuce, but you have to do that. And if there's shade, if there's a tree in your backyard, you're going to have to take it down. There's, there aren't vegetables that grow in full shade. Like the tree is going to have to be removed. And there, there it is right there. Like in, on behalf of the annual grasses, we have taken down all the forests. We have plowed up all the grasslands and also that we could grow the annual grains. So we did, we conquered the world on their behalf. Why is still that great big question that nobody can answer? Because it, it really, didn't really help us. Point. I mean, because it, it, the idea that we've been domesticated 
Yes. Or like, well, like you know, owned yeah, <laughs> by the wheats been. and grasses. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a struggle for people to get their head around that. You well, know, maybe these it. plants have kind of manipulated <laughs> us to spread their spread their power across the world. But in a way, it kind of makes sense. Well, and the other thing to point out, too, is that the moment people take up agriculture, human health just falls off the cliff. Like it's this precipitous drop. All of a sudden, there are diseases that we've never seen before. Um, the very first thing that happens is people shrink six inches and their teeth fall out. So uh, this is absolutely uniform across the world. Agricultural, um, archaeological sites, you'll find the hunter-gatherers, and then there's a very distinct line when suddenly they become agriculturalists because the hunter-gatherers, their bones are long and strong and disease-free, and all the skulls have beautiful teeth still. And then you cross the line and somehow agriculture has started and now they're shorter and their bones are brittle and they're scarred with diseases and they're missing their teeth. And it's so clear in the, in the archeological record, you know, the date that it started because it's 50, all it takes is like 10 seconds and any archeologist can tell you whether this was a hunter gatherer population or an agriculturalist, because it's so clear in the bones. Mm, yeah, we're going to get, I'm going to close on the nutritional aspects because okay. I think your story is really, really interesting. There's one last kind of question in the moral political stuff. And I know we've, we've played on this um, topic quite a bit, but I think it's important because this is usually the main driver behind people then w- walking themselves through something that intuitively doesn't make sense in terms of what their body craves, but they go for these, you know, plant-based diets anyway, because it, it, the moral and political drivers are so strong. The last question I, I, I want to ask around this is the, the feed to cattle and livestock. So a big part of the vegan narrative that I hear is, you know, there, there will, there'll be some, someone will make a statement around, you know, if we just stopped planting so much of these kind of monocrops, you know, life would be we'd be in a better place. And then the response or the rebuttal is, but hey, the majority of that is to feed our livestock, to feed you, the omnivore, the guy that eats the meat. And I know that to one not be intuitively true, but at the same time, there is nuance in in that, right? The reason why we feed these animals, these foodstuffs that they don't natively choose is actually because of agriculture in the first place. Can you kind of dig into that a little bit more for us so we can kind of explain that nuance? Yeah, so the first thing is they're wrong. It does not take whatever, 16 pounds of you know grain to make a pound of beef. Um, most of the stuff that's fed to animals in feedlots is actually agricultural byproducts. So it's stuff we would never eat anyway. It's the leftovers. Um, about 13% of what they're fed is like corn that humans might eat, but that means that 87% of it is stuff that humans cannot digest. So you have to remember, we have no mechanism to digest cellulose. Humans can't do that. Um, cows can do it. Ruminants are the ones who really, that's you know where they came, that's their thing. Like that's what they do is they're really good at, at cellulose. And we don't have the bacteria to do that. We have one single stomach. There's We don't have a neutral stomach that you know gives a home to bacteria we have a completely different kind of digestion that relies on a highly acid environment. So we have no mechanism to digest cellulose. And we all know this. You cannot go outside and eat grass for breakfast. You can't eat tree bark or leaves, right? Like we know this actually. (laughs) We can't digest cellulose, but cows can. So what they're mostly fed in those feedlots is not something that humans would eat anyway. Like 87% of it is things that humans do not want 
and cannot actually use for food. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's a misrepresentation. I don't want to say it's a lie because I don't think people who say it understand that they're not telling the truth. I don't think they're purposefully telling a lie, but the facts are just wrong about this. And I, I don't say this in any way to defend feedlots because they're horrible on every level. And I think every moral person should be against them no matter what you decide to eat. But the point is they're wrong even in their basic statistics because they're just not. They're not eating a whole bunch of food that's in competition with humans. So put that aside. Now, the second thing, well, what if they were? Well, I mean, the reason that any of that goes to cows anyway is because of this surplus. So 1950, beginning of the Green Revolution, all of a sudden, you know, agricultural yields are quadrupling overnight because of the application of fossil fuel. Now there's a mountain of corn coming out of uh, the Midwest here, the American Midwest, the Canadian prairie, it's all been turned into corn and there's just a mountain of the stuff and it's, you know, pennies on the pound. Like it, there's so much of it. You could never get rid of it all. It's just a huge amount of surplus. And that's the moment that factory farming is invented before that it literally didn't exist. And that's the reason why is because all of a sudden economically, it suddenly made sense to feed corn to cows up until then, nobody had ever done it. Because it didn't make any sense. It was the too land expensive. Was too inefficient, right? Well, you, why you would need you do it? Grass, yeah. right? Yeah. So there was no point. But all of a sudden, with corn that cheap, you could do it. So they did. This being capitalism, somebody figured out. Well, we can make these cows get really fat really fast. I.e., we can make meat really cheap. Um, and they did. So they've now put cows essentially inside cities. You know, they live in these great big barns on cement floors, and it's horrible for them. It's horrible for everybody and they eat corn and they get really big, really fast. It does the same thing to them that it does to us, it makes us kind of fat and that, that's it. So yeah, now we have factory farming, but the reason it exists is because of that surplus. It wasn't the other way around. Like the cows did not invent the green revolution. It was the other way around. And the only reason that they got it was because it was so cheap. Um, if you were to take that food and instead like distribute it to, quote unquote, hungry people around the world. There's always just sort of teeming mass that we all sort of have in our minds, right? Like, oh, there's hungry people, give them the corn. Um, what that's in fact, the, the last thing you want to do, because there's a name for that. And it's called agricultural dumping. And what that means is these large corporations who can produce really cheap corn or whatever grain, um, they are able to sell it in poor countries for about half the price that the local farmers can produce it for. And that's what's happened around the world. So you can go to places like the Philippines or Mexico or pick your country. And this vast agricultural dumping has happened and driven the local farmers off their land and into urban squalor. And that's why at, as the Green Revolution starts to unroll, you see this explosion of urban squalor in places like Karachi and Mexico City. It's because all of those farmers were put out of business. Why? Because that thing that all the leftists are telling us to do, which is take that cheap grain and give it to hungry people is not actually a solution. And nobody who cares about food politics or world hunger actually suggests that as a solution because it's not. All you're doing is wrecking the local economies every time you do that. And you are driving countries further and further into food insecurity because now they're utterly dependent on places like the United States to get their basic foodstuffs. And nobody would call that justice in any other instance, except right now, um, that's what, you know, people who are vegetarians are asking us to do. And it doesn't actually make any sense. 
So what it means is the local people now have to get jobs making whatever cheap computer, you know, motherboards or sneakers. Um, and then with the pennies that they get from that, they have to go buy food. Whereas a generation ago, they would have been growing their own, but they were driven out of business because of agricultural dumping. So there's no level on which this works as a solution. I know it seems like it should work, right? I mean, I said it for 20 years. Oh, we could feed the world. No, that's not how it works. People in the Philippines shouldn't be dependent on, you know, American grain cartels for their food. That's actually called imperialism. We have a name for that model. Mm. And for some reason, everybody thinks it's okay when it comes to food, or at least vegetarians think it's okay. There's no other instance when they would suggest that as a model to get justice because it's not. You blow my mind. I mean, you, yeah. you, you did in the book and you continue as you, as, as you eloquently say it, but this idea that, you know, this idea of, you know, it's not gifting, right? Because these countries are buying the products from us, but this idea that we're doing a favor to the rest of the world yeah. by, you know, providing our surplus, uh, you know, all the soy or you know, whether it's the Amazonian forest, you know, the, 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 soy, the soy being produced there, you know, just shifting that all around the world is solving the world's problems it's not right and we're going to get yeah. to nutrition in a second but the fact that it is economically not viable for these countries who are now deprived of opportunities to make food locally because they right. can't compete that's that's something i hadn't even considered before yeah and i mean there's been all kinds of you know, different activist groups and even whole governments have come to places like the World Health Organization and the World Trade Organization and made these arguments like, could you just stop agricultural dumping? You are destroying our capacity to feed ourselves. We know how to make food. You're not letting us. Like you've driven everybody out of business and then snapped up the land. And, you know, could you please stop? Because this is not right. And it nothing seems to stop it. It just keeps getting worse. But on the end of people, you know, who live in America or, you know, in other parts of Europe, we have to stop saying that this is like some kind of a solution because it's literally the problem. Mm. This is what's creating world hunger. It's not a solution to it. What about if I said to you, like, but I see the images on National Geographic or I see the adverts on telly of, you know, these starving kids and, you know, it, the, the land looks desolate. It looks like a, yeah. it looks like a desert, right? How, yeah. how can they produce their own food? The fact they're getting grain and they're making slop out of grain and all that kind of stuff, or at least they're getting food. And that's thanks to, you know, Western cultures offering those foodstuffs. Is it, are well, they, can they sustain in these, <laughs> in these kind of desolate countries, which don't, don't seem to have much agricultural opportunity for themselves? The, well, there's a few things, obviously, if there's a famine, you know, everybody should gather around and give what they can, right? I mean, it, I'm not saying we shouldn't provide aid when there's a desperate situation, but we're talking about, you know, these really large structural issues. And the way to justice is not through getting poor countries even more dependent on the rich. Like, it just, there's no way that that's going to work as a solution. Like, these are places that used to be able to provide their own food, and now they can't. And the reason they can't is because their local economies were wrecked. And they were wrecked by the rich countries. So, you know, it's there's six corporations that control the world food supply. Six. Wow. Like, that's it. That's that's who's doing this. And they're very good at doing it. They know how to undercut the market and drive the local people out of business. And that's what they've done around the world. So, yes. And, you know, to your other point about the desolation, sure, um, places have been wrecked. And the places that have been doing agriculture the longest are the most wrecked. But I'm not out of hope. I mean, it, that that land can be restored. 
Like we know something about how to do that now. So people need to be given, um, you know, the opportunity to do that. And it's not hard once you grab a hold of the principles and it does involve animals. That's the thing. Um, they're not going to do it without ruminants, but the moment you get the appropriate animals back on the land and you understand our role as apex predators, then that rejuvenation can happen pretty quickly. And there's plenty of places that have tried it and, and it can work really, it can be really fantastic. So we have solutions. We just need the political will to institute them. But what this means is we have to understand the problem. And honestly, that's one of the biggest reasons I wrote my book was because I feel like the people who care the most about these problems do not understand the nature of the problem. I, I agree. I agree. And I, I see, I, it's, you know, it makes my, my teeth itch when I see some of the, <laughs> some of the, the, you know, the, the back and forth you see in social media of like yeah. that strong will to convince others to, you know, convert effectively to this, yeah. this cult and this kind of disorder of eating because it, you know, because of the China study or because of, you know, oh, some, God, right? you know, these documentaries on Netflix and you're like, but they're fundamentally missing so much of the story. Um, and to have an have an argument on social, well, that's not going to work. But um, there's so it seems there's such a rigidity in their worldview that expo exposing them to new information is like well, there's just resistance to even explore it. And that's the yeah. reason I wanted you on the mics. And I knew this was going to be complex, and it it's going to be hard for people to get because you know we're touching on so many things. We're, we're trying to we can't respond with sound bites and I'd love to, yes. but it's not possible right. because it is. Complex. I know. I know. And I, I feel like I'm always at a disadvantage with this because, you know, they can just say meat is murder and I'll come back with, well, weed is murder, but I have to explain that. That takes know? a long and time. I, I can't do it in 30 seconds. It can't be done. It's a good 30 minutes at least to at least start the conversation because these are concepts that are going to be brand new to most people. Um, and I'm happy to do it over and over again. But, you know, you do get a little bored having that same conversation. And yeah. there came that point where I thought, I think I just need to write a book because I, it's I can't reach enough people one on one that this is ever going to make a difference. So yeah, and, and and a book is fantastic. So I would urge people if they if they want to understand the political discussions that you've kind of raised, or they want to look into the into the moral or the animal rights discussions, I think you you address those so perfectly. And we're not going to go into all of those now because we are obviously uh, burning through time quite quickly here. I do want to make sure that we give just enough air and attention to the nutritional side. So. Sure. You have a you have a very personal journey, and and you've seen and witnessed it through many of your friends who also tried to explore veganism for long stretches of time. Could you give us a sense of how your um, health had deteriorated, had deteriorated, and some of the kind of yearnings that you were struggling and combating and kind of resisting? Uh, and then maybe we can from there. I'll ask a few more questions, really around like the the vegan. The, the, the dependence or the foodstuffs that are mostly dependent on in a vegan diet and why they're perhaps not such a good thing. But let's start with your personal health story, if that's okay. Sure. I mean, there's probably nothing more boring than other people's medical problems. But um, yeah, so two years into being a vegan, I uh, my spine started degenerating. So I have... Um, I have degenerative disc disease at four levels. It's a grade four derangement, which is as bad as it gets. Um, and that doesn't go away. Uh, once your joints start going, you don't get them back. So that's permanent. Um, and that was two years in. So that started pretty much right away. 
uh, even sooner, actually, I got the really bad blood sugar issues and I didn't know what it was. Like I had no idea that there was a name for it. I just knew that I felt like I was going to die if I didn't put food in my mouth on a really regular basis. And that was not something I had experienced before I was a vegan. Um, it doesn't come on overnight. You know, it takes a few months, a few years, and suddenly you realize that you just feel lightheaded and shaky and you're sweating if you don't eat. And that gets worse and worse. Like the longer you do the diet, the worse it gets. And honestly, by the end, I was just semi-constantly eating. And I see this all the time in you know, the people in my life who are still trying to eat that way, they can't go four hours, six hours, eight hours without eating. Mm -hmm. They fall over, you know, and I, mean, I, I remember. And I wasn't a vegan. Horrible. I just eating the crap I was eating a few no, years no, ago. No, just any kind of a high, you know, any kind of high carb, high sugar, whatever. It's that's where you end up. And I understand now what the mechanism is. But at the time, I had no idea what was going on. It just got worse every year. So I blew through my insulin receptors. Um, that happened. Another very common thing that happens to both men and women is you're, you're going to mess up your, your, just your reproductive hormones are going to go crazy on you. And partly that's because all of our, all of that stuff is made from cholesterol. Cholesterol is like the mother substance. And if you don't have enough cholesterol in your diet, you simply can't make things like estrogen and testosterone. It's, there's not enough to go around and your body does a lot of amazing things to keep you alive. So there's always sort of fallback plans. Um, and one of the fallback plans for starvation is, well, you need to stay alive moment to moment. You don't need to reproduce right now. Clearly, there's not enough food for you to reproduce anyway. So it's probably not a good idea. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. You're not giving me enough cholesterol. Fine. We're just going to shut down, you know, sex hormone production. You're not going to get any of those for a while. We'll just keep you alive moment to moment. When there's more food, we'll talk about the other stuff. So that's what happens. So a lot of women who do these super low fat diets, they stop menstruating, they end up with all kinds of, you know, reproductive health issues. All of that happened to me. Um, you know, I ended up having to have surgery for fibroids and blah, blah. It was just dreadful. Like it just goes on and on. Um, so that all just really sucked. But, you know, I will say that after 20 years of essentially not menstruating, which is not normal folks, like that's just not a good thing. If you're an adult human female, you should be getting a period every month where there's something wrong. Um, and I say that because I was in total denial about mm. this. Okay. Like when you're in vegan world, you cannot look at what's happening to your body. You cannot examine how bad, how much you're damaging yourself because then the whole thing falls apart. So you live with this tremendous denial. Like every year your problems get worse. Your joints hurt more. Your depression gets worse. You know, your reproductive status is declining. You have no sex drive. You're totally depressed. You're angry all the time. You don't know why. You can't think about any of it. Like you can't, there's, you can't put a little chink in the armor or the whole thing will collapse. So I'm telling you, if this is you, it's not normal. Please stop. Anyway, so. But you, you I, talked about depression and anger. You Are you suggesting oh that's, that's yes. part of the nutritional it issue? It absolutely is. So your brain is about 80% fat. That's what it's made from. If you don't give your body fat, your brain will shrink. And that is honestly what the, the MRIs show. Like we have actual pictures that show brain shrinkage. And of course, the people who do the worst are the vegans. Um, vegetarians don't do great, but the vegans, they can see about 5% of their brains will shrink. It's 120th their brain just simply disappears. And it's because you're not giving your body what it needs to build new brain cells it can't do it on its own. Like we can't live on air. We can't live on sunlight. 
you have to eat what your body needs. So your brain will shrink. Um, the other way to think about this is, so what does your brain do? Well, one of the things is there's synapses, right? So you have the receptor and then you have um, the neurotransmitters and you need both of those to actually make like a connection happen so that things like emotions can happen and thoughts can happen. And all of that is either made from literally made from either amino acids, so protein or fatty acids, fat. And if you don't give those to your brain, it can't function. And this is why people who eat either low fat or vegan diets have dramatically more depression. They have those uncontrollable rages and two to three times more likely um, to have some kind of major um, like mental health issues. And those studies have been, I mean, they've just been done over and over again and it's the same and it's not a mystery. Like we know why if you don't have fat and protein in your diet, your brain can't work. Like that's what it's made out of. Every last one of those neurotransmitters is made from protein. And the one that we know, you know, that's got the most fame is serotonin because mm -hmm. of all the SSRIs and the Prozac and all that. And you know, those drugs can work for people, but one thing to try first might be to shift your diet because if you don't give your body the basic fuel, yeah, you can trick it, you know, with a chemical, but if you give it the actual food that it needs, you might just be able to produce your own serotonin and then you wouldn't need to take drugs. And that's part of the problem. Like one of the reasons that we're having this just huge kind of epidemic of depression across the Western world. I mean, there's certainly sociological reasons for that too, but a great deal of it is simply nutritional. Even if you're eating meat, the problem is that if the cows are only eating corn, they also aren't going to have tryptophan in the byproducts. You're not going to have meat or dairy that has enough tryptophan in it because corn doesn't have any tryptophan. And okay. It's, it's, so it, they, yeah. they can't produce it either. They need to be eating the proper thing, which is grass. So even if you're eating a lot of that kind of meat, you're still not getting enough tryptophan because the meat itself doesn't have enough. So this is why one of the reasons I really believe that we've had this huge increase in depression is the foodstuffs are so bad out there. It's just such a poor source for all of it. So, and there leap. really aren't any, there's a big leap for people to, to accept because you, you, you look at, you look at our lifestyles and you, you blame technology, you blame, you know, work, work schedules, you blame lack of sleep, you blame lack of exercise, all of those, I think, have a have a role to play, right. But um, I don't think people have have necessarily at large been willing to accept that maybe our food is causing our emotional state. And you know, when you especially when you look at um, the anger, and the anger you, you get from uh, many vegans, you think that's just anger, because I don't believe in your moral compass i don't i don't have your worldview and therefore you're angry at me and you think most of that is born from from just a, a disconnect of people but you're suggesting it's not just the the frustration that the world isn't doing what they want but it's also that there's there's something going on neurologically as well absolutely and i have experienced it myself so i know <laughs> um but you know there's one study that showed that uh, i mean all, all of the other sort of declining health you know, mental health outcomes of people who eat vegan diets. And then, you know, the very last one is that they actually have a higher murder rate, which is totally horrifying. Like, how does that even happen? But they do, they have a higher murder rate. Um, they have way higher suicide risk, you know, all of this, um, which is just incredibly tragic because it's self-inflicted, you know, and I know people think they're doing the right thing, but you're not going to feel well un until you actually eat what your brain needs. And you're not going to be able to change two and a half million years of evolution 
just because you want it to be true. Like reality doesn't bend to ideology that way. And I tried. <laughs> I really did think that I could bend physical reality because I wanted it, but it doesn't work that way. And it, it's just a sad moment, but it's reality. You will feel better if you eat the appropriate human diet. Okay. You know, there's no question. You made a couple of references in the book when you had cream cheese or... Oh, God. Yeah, and you just yeah. lit up, right, apparently? Oh, it would be like, you know, two hours of just utter bliss of finally <laughs> being fed. And then, of course, the guilt just sets in. And you, oh, what am I doing? This is so terrible. And I'm such a bad person. And how could I do this? And But then it would be this struggle, you know, like every hour, like getting closer and closer. Like, oh, my God, I'm going to walk by that store again tomorrow. I could do it again. And none of it made any sense. Like that level of craving, you're just starving and you don't know it. And I, I just don't even know how to describe what it was like. It was, and it was such a dissonance too, because this was terrible. And, you know, why would I do this? And I'm such a, how can I be falling down on the job? I know how terrible those animals' lives are. And I'm supposed to be the good person. And it, you know, just totally messes with your self image. But the cravings would just be overwhelming. And then there was always these, you know, we had these sort of strange little urban myths about it. Like, well, if you eat some, you're going to get really sick. And everybody sort of believed that somehow, you know, you would vomit or, you know, you would be just completely laid, laid, laid down for, you know, days if you, if you had a binge of like that. And it was never true. Like nobody I know actually got sick after, you know, falling off the wagon once or twice, you'd actually feel dramatically better. And again, I couldn't, I had no way to explain why that was true. It was like, oh my God, the relief would be so profound. You just feel like a normal person for, you know, a half an hour or whatever. Yeah, because you fed your brain what it needed and it could finally function a little bit. Mm. It's just, it's terrible. Like the, that kind of fundamentalist sort of cult-like thinking, you know, where that you just, like reality does not match what you're insisting so strongly it should be. And you're there in the middle with your experience going, but that's not actually what's happening. And that you just have no way to, must you, be horrible. Yeah, it's just, it's awful. It's awful stuff. So you've spoken about grains and your grasses. So if people have been listening to this show and are starting to educate themselves on what good nutrient dense nutrition looks like, you know, they'll, they'll start to come to some conclusions that it's not just what you eat, it's what you don't eat, right? And we sure. know that we have far too much grains, seeds, sugars, and vegetable oils in our modern, mm -hmm. highly processed, ultra-processed right. diet. Now, if you think about your kind of uh, vegan lifestyle, the foods that you ate, how much of your diet, honestly, was grain, seeds, sugar, and vegetable oils? Because I know there are many vegans that would say, well, I don't touch white flour, and I do my best to not have processed food. So, you know, this argument that I'm, you know, I'm consuming these, these bad foods, well, I'm not. I'm choosing not to for the most part. Or are they? Well... Everything that I ate was whole grain. I never touched white flour or white sugar. And it doesn't really matter. Like that is not actually where it turns. The point is that if you're eating that grain-based diet, you've got too much sugar in your diet. Like you can call it a complex carbohydrate if it makes you feel better. But at the end of the day, every last molecule is going to be broken down into a, a simple sugar. That's how your digestion works that's how it's absorbed. Like your body breaks it down and then tiny little, the tiny little sugars are then absorbed through your intestines into your bloodstream. So it might take a tiny bit longer than if you were just to eat white flour or white sugar. So there's a slight delay 
because the breakdown has to happen, but it's still just sugar at the end of the day. So it's just a load of sugar every time, every time you open your mouth, that's what you're putting in there. So on that level, it doesn't matter. And then on the other, another level, it also doesn't matter because all of those grains have way too many omega-6s. And this is where we can get, you know, a little bit into the science, but there's, you need omega-3s and omega-6s. It's all humans need both of those. You, you can't live without them, but they have to be in balance because as omega-6s and omega-3s, they're not super useful to you. They have to be converted into other fats along the way. And those conversion processes are really complicated in humans. And we only make enough enzymes. We don't have extra ways to do it. So the point is they have to be eaten in the ratio that you're going to use them. Your body doesn't preferentially choose one or the other. There's not enough enzymes to go around. So if you're eating way too many of one or the other, you're going to be out of balance. And the problem with these high grain, you know, plant-based diets is that it's all omega-6s. There's no omega-3s. Plants don't make them. So it's all omega-6s. And the problem with the omega-6s is that they're incredibly inflammatory. Now you need a little bit of inflammation all the time, um, you know, just to break down dead tissue and to respond to infection and that kind of thing. So you need a little bit, but you don't need a lot, just a little bit. And that little bit is supplied by eating, what do you know? <laughs> if you're eating, you know, grass-based beef, that's a perfect ratio. That shouldn't actually be surprising that like grass-fed beef is perfect for humans because we evolved eating giant ruminants on the African savanna. That's what we are. Like that's mm -hmm. who built us. So of course that's going to be the perfect nutritional profile. Um, but you know, moving on into agricultural foods, that's one of the big problems is that it's all omega sixes. So there are people in the United States when their bodies are tested, they don't have a single omega three anywhere. Like there's none anywhere. And the omega threes are all about calming inflammation. So again, it's that little bit of a balance. Like you do need both, but you're going to have way too many omega sixes eating any seed. So that includes nuts. It includes grains. There's not a single one of them that has enough omega-3s um, for human functioning. So the more of that stuff you eat, the more inflamed you're going to be. And the inflammation is, the I mean, those omega-6s, they're just implicated across the board. Like everything from arthritis to Alzheimer's, the omega-6s are right there. And this is one of the reasons that we have this concept of the diseases of civilization. Like we know that when people take up agricultural foods, a whole bunch of diseases follow on. And these are diseases that are never seen amongst hunter-gatherers. They're only seen amongst farmers. Mm. It's not the correct diet for the human template. I think and that's that, one of the – go ahead. I think one of the responses someone will say is, okay, right, I just won't have pasta and I'll try and do away <laughs> with bread and I'll, I'll not buy processed food. So hang on a minute, you're not talking to me. You're not talking to me because I have just loads of kale, loads of spinach. I have like avocado coming out my ears. You know, I have, you know, salads and, you know – all that kind of stuff. I'll have loads of tofu, you know, loads of soy. Um, and yeah, if I'm not purposely putting in white sugar onto my food, I'm not having processed food that doesn't have vegetable oil because we know that that is no good for us. And right. from a grains perspective, uh, I'm doing my best to avoid pasta and bread. If that is the person who's saying, okay, I get it. I understand that argument. Now, now rebut my diet. If I have take those things out of my diet, do you have a rebuttal? <laughs> so you're eating soy right away. Again, too many omega-6s. I also can give you a mini lecture on what's wrong with soy, but I'll just say, I'll give you the brief version, which is it's a drug. It's not a food. Okay. It's not appropriate for humans to consume soy, except occasionally as a condiment. 
you don't want to make that a food group. You will end up in so much trouble if you do. But what else is this person eating? Like humans can't survive on kale. We can't survive on vegetables. I mean, there's, there's no protein in it. There's no fat in it. It's mostly just water. Like mm. you're going to be so skinny and you're eventually, I mean, you're going to die. Have we you know ever tried to do that? To so just skip I, the grains completely? No. No, I never did like the fruitarian thing. Even to, to my vegan eyes, I could see that those people were crazy. You, there's humans can't live on bananas. Like it's just, we're, we're not fruitivores. Like that's just not a thing we can do. Those people were so skinny. I mean, they still are. I mean, you can see the pictures or the videos of those scary, people who are trying. It's awful stuff. I mean, they just look like concentration camp survivors. It's horrible. Um, even I knew that that wasn't going to work as a, as a plan. So no, I never did the fruit thing, but what else are you going to eat as a vegan? I mean, you can't live on vegetables. There's not enough in them. So what have you got left? If it's not a fruit or an, if it's not a grain or a nut, it's, there's nothing left. Right. Like, and I think a, that's my naivety like as, a, as a non-vegan. <laughs> I just assume <laughs> that you could do the green, green vegetables and fruits and skip the grains completely and you could somehow construct a diet that can kind of work but you would just you'd never get enough calories just right. to start but even if you did it, there'd be nothing in it but sugar and fiber i mean that's that's really all you're going to get mm. and then and, follow, and, and i guess die. i guess the the savior or the the vegan savior is soy right that seems to be the, like the miracle product yeah, um, that seems to solve everyone's problems because it brings it brings the texture it brings the versatility and it brings the protein but it also brings, as as your book brilliantly calls out, so many issues. But one rebuttal would be there isn't the evidence to back up the claims that you made. How do you respond to that? I'm well, sorry. you know, everybody can, we can argue about which study and this study and that study. You can run the experiment on yourself. I did. I can tell you it does not end well. Um, so there's a bunch of problems with soy. One is that it has a trypsin inhibitor in it. And trypsin is a an enzyme released by the pancreas that helps us digest our food. And what soy is doing is it's fighting back, right? Plants don't actually want to be eaten. I mean, we, we all can see that animals run when they're hunted. Plants can't run and they don't have teeth or claws to fight back. But what plants have done is they are the chemical warfare experts of the planet because it's how they fight back. It's how they do everything. It's also how they communicate with each other and how they help each other because they do help each other. Plants are actually very altruistic. They're really good at supporting their neighbors who are sick or under attack. They'll send them nutrients, they'll send them antibiotics, they'll send them all kinds of chemicals to repel bugs. You know, like if there's an infest, insect infestation, they'll warn each other that an attack is coming. Plants do amazing things. But one of the ways that they protect themselves is by having various toxic substances, either in their leaves or in their seeds. And their seeds are especially precious to them because that's their babies. Mm -hmm. So the soy plant doesn't want you to eat their seeds. Like understand, like they're gonna do everything in their power to protect their babies, just like you or I would. And soy is really good at it. So number one, you've got the trypsin inhibitor. So the, the soy is saying to you, you can eat me if you want, go ahead, eat my baby, but I'm gonna make you really sick if you do it. And here's one way I'm gonna do that. So you can't digest it. And that's the trypsin inhibitor. Um, a, I mean, you'll hear this just anecdotally a lot that when you eat soy, you have problems with gas, you might have diarrhea, um, you know, this like, terrible stomach pain from eating it. And this used to happen to me all the time, like the stomach ache I got from eating soy. But I did it every day anyway, because I was a good vegan. Mm. Like it was insane, right? But I know people who have had like bloody stools. I know people who have been to the emergency room because the stomach pain was so bad. 
And it's the soy, like just take the soy out of your diet and you'll never have these problems again. So I've just seen that anecdotally, like across my world. And it's so easy to diagnose it in people, you know, like when they, you know, they're still trying to be vegetarian or vegan. And I'm like, so do you have the stomach ache from soy? And they're like, oh, every time I eat soy, it's so terrible. I'm like, why are you doing this? You can just stop. Like you even know yourself that it's creating pain in your intestines. Well, that's the major region is the, the trypsin inhibitor. Like we know actually what causes that. So that's number one is soy saying, you know, I'm, you're not going to eat me without some pain. Number two is the phytoestrogens. So eating soy is this, is, okay. So soy makes this stuff that looks a lot like human estrogen. It's not quite the same. So what it does is it's close enough that it locks onto the estrogen receptors in your body and then the real estrogen can't hook on. So it blocks all your receptor sites with something that doesn't really work the way it's supposed to. It's not quite the same as a real estrogen. And again, this is soy saying, well, you can eat my babies if you want, but I'm going to make sure you don't reproduce. That's going to be like, <laughs> that's like the ultimate threat is we're going to interfere with your capacity to carry on as a species. And soy again is really good at it. Giving a human infant soy formula is the hormone equivalent of four birth control pills every day. Wow. Like that's how much of, of phytoestrogens are in soy products. And again, this was a thing that happened to me. That was definitely one of the factors in my um, amenorrhea and my not having a period was definitely the soy because it got dramatically worse when I was really heavily into soy. Toward the end of my vegan life, I spent like three or four years eating so much soy because I realized that I couldn't really do the carbohydrate thing anymore. And really all you're left with is nuts and soy at that point. So I was eating a lot of soy and all of my problems got dramatically worse. So <laughs> the soy just doesn't anyway. So you're going to have that. Um, another problem is that, um, it is a known, a known goitrogen. So it attacks the thyroid. Um, it's very, very hard on the thyroid to, when you eat soy, um, and I, one of the problems I've ended up with is Hashimoto's disease, which is the autoimmune disease of the thyroid. Well, Graves is the other one, but I got Hashimoto's and you'll note that Hashimoto is a Japanese name. Mm -hmm. Um, the people in Japan have very, very high levels of thyroid disorders and probably one of the reasons is going to be the soy. Um, another thing to point out is that in most places where they do eat soy, it's not generally eaten as a protein replacement. It's usually eaten as a highly fermented condiment. So miso or, so yeah. Um, and the reason is because when you ferment it, some of these problems are at least somewhat resolved. So how it is that people figured this out, I mean, that's a mystery, but every culture has its traditional wisdom when it comes to food. And often these things turn out to be quite correct, right? And so in Japan and other places in Asia, I mean, they'll ferment soy for two or three years before they'll use it as, you know, a, a yummy condiment. And that's why is it actually does reduce some of these problems that, that soy will produce if you eat it raw. Well, you've definitely um, convinced me not to, <laughs> to, 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 to not even do go it. down the soy milk. Don't aisle. even just, it's <laughs> awful stuff. Um, it, and it, and it also, it, there's another enzyme that it'll produce that, um, destroys the memory centers of your brain in the hippocampus. Um, and that's another problem that you're going to see with a lot of vegans is even at very young ages, they have You'll just, you'll see it in these populations where they just have terrible problems with memory. And I'm talking about people who are 25, not people who are 70. And they can't remember where they put their car keys. They can't find their knapsack. They've got no idea where they parked the car, like really basic stuff. They can't do it. And it's the soy. Like I know what did it. 
and they don't want to hear it, but, and we know the mechanism. This isn't just like, I'm guessing, like we know it destroys that region, you know, the, the enzyme that makes memory retention. Like that's what it does to you. So it's not a protein source, but it also is always going to have too many omega sixes. Like it doesn't solve the problem of the too much inflammation, and it's which highly is pro produced as well, right? You know what we have to do to get to get, get it the edible, formula yeah. or to get that yeah. soy burger. There's just a lot going on, isn't there? Even yeah, tofu, the way we produce it in Western cultures is not the way they would do it in native cultures. If you want to get a, a great big oak barrel and make your own miso, and then add that to your fish broth soup. I'd say have at it. I wouldn't really have a problem recommending that. But beyond a tablespoon now and then of a highly fermented, you know, in an oak barrel kind of backyard situation, I would not, I mean, I don't touch the stuff at this point. So mm. so the last question I have, and I think this is the one that's going to be burning, uh, on, it's going to be on people's lips now more than anything else is right. Okay, fine. You've, you've given us all the negatives, but there's a massive upside of being vegan, which is all the plants, all the plants, all the nutrition, because we've been told forever that we've got to get, you know, five a day. Now it's 10 a day, you know, get your, your, your rainbow of colors of fruits and vegetables. And that's where the nutrition is. The meat stuff, oh, that's just going to kill you. But the nutrition is in the vegetables. Now I am being somewhat rhetorical here and I'm being playful because I know that ought <laughs> to be true, but there are, there are some, there are some deficiencies that are going to, expose themselves on this diet right both in terms of inadequacy of nutrition or complete absence of nutrients can you just kind of briefly kind of walk us through what those issues are going to be even on the best well-constructed vegan diet um yeah. now and now let's assume that not supplementing by I, I suspect supplementation has to feature in a vegan diet long term yeah it would um and the thing to remember is that if you're relying on nutritional supplements for your diet, like for basic food, um, that's actually one of the definitions of an eating disorder. Just keep that in mind, everybody. Like that's mm -hmm. what we're doing. <laughs> okay, so the problem with the vegan diet is you've got the problems of excess and then the problems of deficiency. And the excess is certainly the carbohydrate is just sugar. So you've got way too much sugar and then the omega-6s. So those are the two excesses of it. Now the deficiencies. Well, that's just, the list just unrolls. First of all, you've got the fat-soluble vitamins, literally no way to get them without eating animals. So that's vitamin D and vitamin A especially. Um, a couple others as well, but those are the big ones. And you might think, well, we can get vitamin D from sunshine. It's true you can get a little bit, and that's not a bad thing. You should go outside and sit in the sun. That's definitely a good thing to do for lots of reasons. It'll stimulate serotonin production. Like Lots of good things will happen from sunshine. But unless you're naked at the equator for a great deal of the day, there is no way for humans to produce enough vitamin D just from sunlight. We really do need to eat it. And the best place to get that is pasture-raised pork. <laughs> there are no um, sources of that that aren't from animals. Like it, it doesn't happen in, in plants. They don't need vitamin D, so they don't make it. So that's vitamin D. Vitamin A is the same deal. Um, we have to eat it. And there's some confusion out there because there are plant sources of one form of vitamin A, it's not the biologically active form for humans. We have to convert it. And that conversion is a very complicated process. Even in the healthiest people, it's not the easiest thing for humans to do. The very young and the very old really can't do it at all. And there's an entire subsection of the human population 
that will never be able to do it. They lack the enzyme to do the conversion. And this is especially people whose ethnic background is from coastal or riverside people. So if you're from an island or from a coastal area, you know, in your in your genetic background, it's very likely you can never do those conversions. And that's because those diets were so high in vitamin A from seafood that they didn't that evolution just chopped that bit of the tree off. Like you don't evolution is really good at that. It's constantly pruning. Mm-hmm. And the moment that you have enough of something abundantly, it's like, great, we don't need to make it anymore. We won't bother. And it, that gene is just gone. It's just in the trash pile of of evolution. So a lot of people who are from those backgrounds have no way to do the conversion. They are obligate carnivores. Like they will die if they don't eat some animal foods. This is a large section of humans. And the vegans never want to talk about it. Of course they don't because it blows their whole kind of origin theory. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> the myth that they have about, you know, our little garden of Eden or wherever we came from just doesn't make any sense anymore. Like if there's all these people who literally have to eat meat, um, then, you know, why are we vegan? So yeah, there's the vitamin A issue, and but vi- even if vi- you- vi- vitamin A is abundantly in awful like liver, for example, yeah, right? Absolutely. It's one of the best sources is liver. Yep. And this is what's, I don't know how bad it is in where you are in the UK, but in the United States, almost nobody eats organ meats anymore. Like you have to be seriously holding on to your cultural background to still be eating liver. Nobody does it. And it's insane, right? Like it's the most nutrient dense part of the food. So I would, I would say it is, it's very similar. I I went most of my life despising this stuff, like just the smell of it. If my mum ever cooked some kidneys or liver, because it just didn't Uh, smell right. And I think like culturally it's, it's just completely abandoned. However, I would say the rich or um, you know the, the upper class they'll have a lot of it because they'll have pate they'll have things like that within uh, their foodstuffs and I think that's bleeding down into middle class because we're all kind of upgrading our class system right. generally speaking so I think <laughs> it bleeds into a lot of people's foods but it's more in restaurants I don't think people are purposely either buying liver at home or buying pate for home but I have over the last year and yeah it's such a rich source of th- these vitamins Just find you're talking a way. about so okay vitamin a vitamin d um, K2, yeah, there's some leafy greens that have it, but honestly, you're way better off getting it from an animal source. Then you have things like heme iron. So they don't necessarily say, like you won't see that on the list of you know, recommended daily whatever, but you actually need it and you need it pretty profoundly. If you think about a red blood cell, at the very, the red blood cell is an amazing thing, just evolutionarily speaking. It's just an amazing, the, like read about it. It's so cool. At the very center of it though is a little molecule of what's called heme iron. It's a very specific kind of iron. And it's the molecule that actually grips the oxygen when you know it's when the blood throws flows past the very surface of your lungs and it's grabbing the oxygen for you. That's the molecule that's doing the holding. So it's holding onto that oxygen. And then as the blood circulates and it you get to tissue that needs oxygen, that's what releases is that little molecule of heme iron. Literally does not exist in nature except in animal foods, plants don't need it. They don't make it. They don't have it. You're not going to have any heme iron. You'll have other kinds of iron, but they're not as good. They're not as biologically active. And so what's going to happen is you're going to get anemic. Your body's going to try its best. It's going to take whatever iron it has so that you don't suffocate without oxygen. It's got a fallback plan, but it's not going to work as well. And I have personally have friends who were hospitalized with anemia because they were trying to be vegetarian and they didn't have enough heme iron. So they're turning blue all the time. 
um, it's not a lot of fun. So you've got to get some, and that's the only place to get it. And all of this is an argument to say, you know, biologically speaking, we really are not meant to be vegans. There's too much stuff missing. Now we've got the B12 issue. And that's the sticking point where at least some vegans will say, all right, all right, take a B12 subs supplement because you have to. There are no plant sources of B12. Please do not fool around with nutritional yeast. It's not good enough. Like you need actual B12. Please, please, please. Eat, uh, you will do. I've heard that. <laughs> it's it's uh, bad. You know, if we got dirt on our potatoes, then we'll get some B12. I'm like, no, probably not. You're not gonna. It's not. It's not good. And that damage will be permanent. If you if you damage your hearing or your eyesight from lack of B12, uh, that's forever. Um, I actually got a letter from a neurologist in Germany speaking very beautiful, <laughs> very perfect English. Um, and he just thanked me. He said, I, I see one of these people every week, these vegans, they come in, they have already permanently damaged either their, their eyes or their ears, and they will not listen to me. I have begged them, they will not listen. Now I can give them your book. And that's all, like that's okay, well, my job here is done. Absolutely. Like I've gotten my information into the hands of people who need it. But of course your heart just breaks. Like I know those people, I've been that person, I know how much they want this to be true. I know they think they're saving the world. I know they care about animals. They are trying so hard to do the right thing to the point where permanently damage their eyesight and they still won't listen. Like it's just heartbreaking, right? Anyway, you've got to get you've got to get some B12. You have to do it. No matter what else you do or don't do, even if you think I'm the biggest bullshitter in the world, I don't care. Please just take some B12 before it's too late. Because there's no pulling back from that one. But would you, would you, not, the, would you not say that the other, other uh, nutrients also need supplementation as well if you're going to yes. commit to it? I mean, long term, you're, you're not going to be able to pull this off. You're going to end up with permanent damage. But the B12 one is anybody can Google that and you'll find it's absolutely just an established fact if you, you've got to have some B12. And it's mm -hmm. the easiest thing in the world just to take the supplement. Yeah. So just do it. Like the D and the A and the K2, those are a little harder, I think, for people to wrap their minds around. But the B12 one is just way too established. And those are those terrible cases too of those, the poor kids, you know, the infants and the young babies who their, you know, their parents are determined to be vegans That's and the horrible. kids that, it's awful stuff. And a lot of it is, is the B12, the lack of B12 where the, you know, and the kids are going to be permanently damaged forever, you know, because the parents wouldn't listen. And a lot of that is the B12 damage. So B12, please. So the heme iron, um, there's CoQ10. Um, also, again, it's you really can only find it in animal sources and you need it. Cholesterol itself is honestly a nutrient that we need. One of the main functions of the liver is to produce cholesterol, but you really can't make enough for what the human body needs. You've got to eat some. Cholesterol is this incredibly life-affirming substance. Like without it, you would literally be a puddle on the floor. Every last, the membrane of every last cell in your body it's like a balloon, right? If you think of a cell like a balloon and that the balloon itself is made from cholesterol. So that's every cell in your body needs cholesterol just to give it structural integrity. And then we could go down the list of all the other things that cholesterol is needed for, like hormone production we've already talked about. Um, but without cholesterol, it's just life is not possible. And you can't get it from plants. Again, they don't need it. They have different bodies than us. They don't produce it. They've got their own way. They're, they're cellulose. Their bodies are made from cellulose. So they don't need They've got their own structural integrity. They don't need it from cholesterol, but we do need it. Another thing we need cholesterol for is all, all your nerves are coated in fat and then it comes from cholesterol. And the reason that we need that is because if you think about what animals are, we are a set of electrical impulses inside a watery environment. 
well, how does that work? <laughs> like, why don't we just short out? And the reason is because all of our nerves are insulated. And what they're insulated with is fat, right? Like we know that oil and water don't mix. Like fat is a thing that, you know, is against water, right? They don't come together. So the insulation for all your nerves, that's what it, that sheath, that's what it's made from, the myelin sheath. But if you're not eating cholesterol, your, your body can't protect its nerves. So this is, again, you know, one of the reasons that vegans have so many issues with mental health and with the depression and all that is um, your brain just can't, it can't myelinate without some cholesterol. What about creatine? Is that, is that a thing that you have to supplement if you're on a vegan diet? I would, I would say yes, that I think that that is, again, one of those amino acids you're just not going to get without, without eating it. And that's, that's what it's from. So red meat, right? Yeah, it's tough. A lot of these things are really only found in red meat in any, you know, large amounts, especially. So I really does, again, point to our evolutionary history as apex predators on that African savanna, eating those grass fed (laughs) giant ruminants. That's and all the beautiful pictures we drew of them, I, I think that the, the picture is pretty complete here. It is. And you have done the most magical, marvelous job today. Thank you so much, Leah. It's <laughs> been, um, I'm, I, I, I want to apologize for keeping you on the mics for so long. I, I couldn't do it any other way. I mean, this stuff needs discussion. And uh, the fact you've given your time for me and the audience is just beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, I guess my my closing questions are really you know, what's next for you? Where, where are you, where are you devoting your time and effort? Is, is this cause of educating the world on the information that you've learned, this adult knowledge, is that still driving your behavior uh, in 2020 and beyond? Absolutely. I have another book coming out at the beginning of next year. Okay. That's called Bright Green Lies. And you can look for that next January. Um, not the same subject exactly, but very similar. So hopefully that does some good too. <laughs> Oh, excellent. And I guess you're on, on a speaking circuit quite a bit. Um, yeah, you can. Well, I need to update my website. But generally speaking, yes, you should just go to my website and see what's what. I'm going to be in the United Kingdom in May. So, you oh, really? know, maybe, yeah, you can, you know, take a look, see if you want to come to anything then. Oh, um, I'll check that so out. I'll fun. make sure I'll, I'll yeah. and that'll be on your website, will it, in terms of where you well, can Well, yeah, technically, well, I'll, I'll say theoretically, yes. <laughs> okay. Hopefully I get it up there soon, but that's always the project, updating the website. Um, hopefully we get to that soon. Um, yeah, but um, I, I absolutely am still, I mean, our planet is so at risk right now. We've only got maybe a decade if we're lucky to pull it back. And I really, really want the people who care most about the situation to understand the nature of the problem and that is what drives me well 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 done for fighting a good fight for us all and um just to be clear your website is what leah okay so it's kind of a joke because it's really easy it's just my name leahkeith.com okay. and that's a joke i have a funny name but if you're listening and you're like how in the world would i ever spell that the simple thing is just google vegetarian myth because there's only one book with that title and it's me. So Perfect. you'll get to me from there. It's really simple. Vegetarian myth. Cool. And are you on social media? Yeah. I, well, I'm on Facebook. You can send me a friend request. Um, and that's it. I don't do Twitter. It's too obnoxious. I can't stand it, but I am on Facebook. So <laughs> lovely. Cool. Well, I'm going to make sure I put all of this in the show notes. Thanks again. It's been okay. absolutely amazing. Say hi to your dog. Cause, uh, he or she has been quite vocal today, which is lovely. It's made it real. That's been a lot of bark. Well, there are two dogs. They're giant. I have great Pyrenees. So when they bark, it's a heckin' big bork. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Good stuff. Thank you so much for today. Um, we will All get right. this up ASAP in the next couple of weeks. And um, obviously, I'll, I'll share it with you once we've got that too. Okay, great. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 
So I don't know about you, but that felt like a mic dropping episode on the discussion of veganism. Of course, there is always going to be more to discuss. There is going to be nuance, but I would highly recommend you check out Lierre Keefe's book. It is great. It's emotional. It's linguistic. It is insightful. It is educational. It is scientific. So go check it out. It's called The Vegetarian Myth, and you can find her work online at lierkeefe.com. And if you like this discussion and you want to dig a little deeper, then let me recommend you something. I have spent the last couple of years both interviewing people and doing tons of research to codify my understanding of what it takes to be your best, to live your best life and have the most energy, vitality. And nutrition, of course, plays a significant part, but so does appropriate rest and calmness. So does exercise. So does mindset, life habits, your physique. All these things absolutely matter. But trying to piece this all together for yourself can take a hell of a lot of time there's so much confusion, there's so much misinformation, it is a bit of a maze. So if you want to get a fast track view into what it takes to be your best, I would highly recommend that you check out the Be Your Best journey. I'll put a link in the show notes. It is something that I've labored over. I believe it is truly of value to most people, whether you are already optimizing your life or need that reboot. It starts slow and it builds over a course of 100 days. I'm incredibly proud of it. The feedback has been phenomenal so far and I hope you enjoy it. So if you want a guided tour of everything that I've learned and everything that we stand for at Adaptation, the Be Your Best journey is absolutely something that I think can help. So go check it out. Let me know what you think. And until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best.